On this episode of This Week in Linux, Creator 4.0 is released bringing a lot of great performance improvements and features. LG open sourced a Linux-based WebOS. We'll talk about a new Wayland compositor called Wayfire. And BitKey, a cool cryptocurrency distro based on Debian. In App News, we saw some new releases from Darktable and Inkscape. We got some distro news from Ubuntu Mate, Linux Mint, and more. And later on in the show, we'll check out some Linux gaming news and some Linux security news. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital. This is your weekly source for Linux news. Can't believe I haven't announced this yet, but so let, let's fix it right now. I have joined the Destination Linux podcast. It's a podcast by four guys who love running Linux, and we talk about all kinds of things related to the Linux desktop and distributions and things like that. So if you're interested, feel free to go to destinationlinux.org and check it out. Before we get started with the show, I just want to let you know that I was on the Ubuntu podcast recently with episode 3 of season 11, The Three Musketeers. One of the hosts was not available to record, so they asked me to do it, and it was a lot of fun. So if you are interested, feel free to check it out by going to ubuntupodcast.org, or you can find a link in the show notes below. Creative 4.0 was released this week. It has a lot of great updates and performance improvements, and overall it is just fantastic. One of the biggest problems that Krita had was that it was kind of limited in the amount of resources it could use and the, and the speed it could do things. The version 4.0 adds a ton of new improvements. So it has multi-threading. I'm not sure if every aspect is multi-threaded, but you can do certain things and certain processes and different threads and stuff like that. It also had a rewrite of their vector layer system, and they added Python scripting for different tools. They also added a text tool. Now, the text tool is kind of limited, but it's it's going to be increased like in future releases but the the first release is like a basic feature which is still really cool and improve the gradient tool so it's it's just like overall nice polishing and another really cool thing is that they're making it so that you can copy and paste shapes from Krita and Inkscape back and forth because they're using the SVG structure now which is awesome cuz uh, SVG is the standard for Inkscape so it's also kind of it's a standard anyway but that's what Inkscape uses. So the fact that their Krita is using SVG now, or SVG version 1.1 now, it makes it really easy to go back and forth between Inkscape and Krita. That is awesome. Overall, the, the latest release of Krita is fantastic, and I, I can't wait to play with it some more. But overall, my testing thus far, the multi-threading alone is awesome. There's even like extra features they've added. So anyway, I'll just go check out the show notes if you'd like to see some more about what's going on with Krita. There is a ton of fantastic things. Just can't wait to play with it some more. And if you're interested in doing some image editing, this is not really that. This is more like image creation with like painting and you can like design comic stuff like that. If, if they added some image manipulation program aspects to it, then Krita would be like the best solution for that. But so far right now, it is a fantastic painting tool. I've probably said fantastic too many times, and I'm going to go ahead and end this topic now. LG announced this week that WebOS is being open-sourced. So they've, they've got a new initiative for the WebOS OSE, or WebOS Open Source Edition. You can get find out more about it at webosose.org. For the most part, this is like this is great news. I am a big fan of WebOS, well, the original WebOS, because I haven't used it since they since LG took over, so I don't really know about that. But 
as far as legacy goes, I I I, I kind of love WebOS. WebOS was a operating system that was made by Palm in 2009, technically. 2008 was when they announced it, and 2009 is when they shipped it. It was the probably the only operating system that I thought had a chance to beat Android and, and iOS at the time. It didn't beat them because the, it was handled poorly by Palm. Unfortunately, they announced a lot of cool features way before it was ready to actually be used. And then by announcing those features, Android copied them. <laughs> they kind of lost a little bit of their steam in that, that case. I was still a fan of WebOS because WebOS is based on Linux. It was a Linux operating system for mobile. And that's why I got my WebOS Palm Pre. And I still have it because um, I'm a huge fan of the operating system. Uh, unfortunately, the hardware was not so good. But Palm sold that operating system to HP. HP used it for very little. And then made it. they made a tablet, decided they didn't want to make the tablet anymore, fire-selled it, got rid of all the units they had, which I almost got a chance to buy, but I missed it by like 20 minutes. It was annoying. But HP then sold to LG. LG turned it in, in 2013, bought it, and turned it into a TV, smart TV interface. If you buy an LG TV, you probably have the WebOS interface on it. And it's actually a really nice interface. It's like the only interface that of a TV that's actually decent. Um, that's not a very high bar, I admit. But with the announcement of the WebOS open sourcing, this has a ton of potential to maybe give Android a run for its money now. Because back in the day, Palm was really ahead of its time. Because WebOS was a, it's a web-based technology, as the name implies. Back then, the, the hardware probably wasn't good enough to use it anyway, as far as like long-term. But the latest, ver like the latest hardware, like if I could just take this operating system, put it in this phone, I would love it. Like it would be amazing, because I'm a huge fan of the WebOS uh, concept. Even, like just for example, the web, like the card system that you have in, in Android, where you can like take the have a card and just swipe it away. That was invented by WebOS, and then Android took it. Anyway, hopefully the announcement of the WebOS open source initiative will reinvigorate the community, invigorate the ecosystem, and the potential that WebOS has to become a really good operating system to use in a mainstream aspect. I, I would look forward to it. I hope I'm not just in delusion. <laughs> up next in the show, we got some really cool updates from the KDE Connect team. So first up is the remote keyboard plugin. The remote keyboard plugin is really interesting because it allows you to basically type on your phone via your desktop and like a notification. So you can change it to use KDE Connect remote keyboard and then just type with your regular keyboard in your, your desktop. So that's a really interesting idea. I mean, I'm not really sure how practical it is because you have to switch back and forth. If you're like when you stop using your keyboard for your, your computer, you got to switch it back into the phone. So I'm not really sure how often I would be willing to do that. But we'll see. I'll test that out. And you can now also, instead of just replying to just SMS, you can now reply to WhatsApp and any other application that supports the protocol that Android allows for quick reply. That's pretty cool. I'm not really sure how many applications support this or what specifically supports it, but in theory, it should be a lot. It'd be really cool to find out what all does. I like maybe Telegram. That'd be really nice. They also added icons and notifications, so it makes the notifications look nice and polished. Like, there's a few things that are mainly just, like, polished like improvements. So this is nice, but I'm not really sure what's different because this is direct share. You could already always share 
content from like URLs from your browser through KDE Connect to your main computer. So I'm not totally sure what this is. Maybe like instead of just doing KDE Connect, oh, I know what it is now. Instead of just clicking KDE Connect and then picking which one you want to connect to or send through, you can just send directly from here. That makes sense. So there, okay, there you go. My favorite thing is easily the improvements to the uh, multimedia control system. Like they added this this uh, album art. That's cool. But this is what I like the most is the ability to have the media player as a notification on your lock screen. I didn't think I would use it that much. Turns out I was wrong. I use it all the time. That's awesome. <laughs> so there's a lot of cool stuff coming from KDE Connect. I look forward to seeing even more updates. Earlier in the show, we talked about Inkscape alongside with Krita, but we also had an update from Inkscape itself. This is mostly just a maintenance release fixing some bugs, but there are some other things that are pretty cool. So they added the support for right-to-left text, so you can now use use Inkscape to make art for languages that use the right-to-left. You can also have new options for exporting SVGs uh, via the command line, so that's pretty nice. You can now do multi-line tech support for PDF and LaTeX exporting. That's nice. You can tune the performance of the render tiling preferences. And they've also improved a lot of their documentation, which is always a good thing. Like last time I talked about, last couple episodes I talked about documentation a couple times. Uh, documentation is way more important than people typically give it credit for. And Inkscape is always really on top of the, making the documentation as good as possible. So I appreciate that as well. This week, the Node Source team announced that the Node.js Snap is available. If you're not familiar, Node.js is a cross-platform JavaScript runtime environment. It's open source as well. It's uh, it's it's most commonly used now for web app as a, as a web app runtime. So, like if you've ever heard of npm, that's the package manager for Node.js. What's really cool about this is that by having a Snap. It's, it lowers the barrier to entry to using NPM-based programs. It also means that because it's being maintained by NodeSource, it means that it's a lot easier to install Node.js, where it has sometimes been a pain to get either the stable version or the beta version because Node changes so fast, all so much, that this would make it a lot easier to utilize Node.js-based applications. So that is fantastic to see. And they're also using the classic-style snap, which is really cool because it integrates with the system more like more directly. If you ever wanted to try out some apps but you couldn't do it because you saw that it depended on Node.js, now it might be possible to do so. Darktable 2.4.2 was released and this comes with a, like it's basically just a maintenance update but also it's got a nice a couple nice features in that it has um, it's added compression control for the TIFF exporting. It's added presets for location search in the map mode. And it has also added a battery indicator for people running Darktable on a laptop. So that's nice. The Probably the most important thing, though, is that they added support for more varieties of cameras. So that if you have a camera that wasn't previously supported, you might be able to use it now. Because If you're not familiar, Darktable is a, a raw image editing. It's kind of like Lightroom, but it's a open source version of Lightroom. It's mainly for photography rather than manipulation. But anyway, uh, check out Darktable if you're interested. Darktable 2.4.2. So unfortunately, we got some news this week that the GNOME shell is having some memory leak issues. Now, this is this was reported a couple weeks ago, about four four weeks ago or so. But there was a video that was demonstrating this that was uploaded. Basically showed that if you interacted with the GNOME shell 
enough times that there would be a memory leak so that the shell would be using more RAM than necessary. The range is between on what you're doing is based on like if you open a menu, if you open the overview, if you activate more applications and then load the overview, it would like add extra memory usage. They found that it was adding 0.1 megabytes for each action being made, such as opening the overview. And it would do it also seemingly every minute add extra 0.1 megabytes. It doesn't seem like a lot and it's not really a lot. But the more you use it and the longer your computer is running, it would create this problem. Now, the only reason I'm mentioning it is because it's, unfortunately, it's not going to be fixed in the Ubuntu 18.04 release because it's, it seems to be just, they just noticed this recently. There is a solution that's, it's not necessarily like the, the cleanest solution, but restart the shell and it will kind of like refresh the amount of RAM being used. So not the best solution, but it's good to at least say that it can be done. So if you are a GNOME user, um, there's there's that information for you. Wayfire is a new Wayland compositor, is a 3D, well, self-described 3D Wayland compositor built on top of the Weston library. What's really cool about this is that it's taking like the some old traditional concepts of plugins and bringing them to Wayland. So, for example, you can have like on-screen keyboards, that's nice, but you can have desktop cubes, you can have workspace previews like the expo modes of various different other DEs. And you can have custom configurable key bindings they're working on. They're doing so they're, they're now currently working on tiling modes and floating modes for Windows. They are even adding some window rule concepts that like Plasma has in KWIN. So this looks like a really interesting project. And one of the things I also wanted to point out was that they said that there is there's support for native Wayland and X Wayland already. So it's possible that you could go ahead and just already try this out. I haven't seen a distro that's using, utilizing it yet, but if I do, I will let you know. This week we got some news from the Linux Mint team about Linux Mint 19 or Terra. They're, they, we had a release date, well, ish. We got a release month. So they have announced that June 2018 will be the release of Linux Mint 19 based on Ubuntu 18.04. But also with it, they got an announcement for the Mintbox Mini 2. The Mintbox Mini 2 actually looks pretty cool. It's a reasonably priced miniature powerful PC. So it's like, it's got a decent processor of Celeron, of a Celeron processor, quad core, also has like four gigs of RAM. So it's a pretty powerful machine, even though it's a, it's a small, very small form factor. It has dual band antennas for both the uh, 2.5 and the five gigahertz spectrum. And it has support for two gigabit ethernet ports. Pretty interesting to have but two of them. It has support for HDMI 1.4 and mini display port 1.2 both of which are at 4K resolution compatible. And they have built in by default a 64 gig SSD. This is $300 base price, and they have a pro version as well, but this particular one is $300, and it comes with it a 64 gig SSD, 4 gigs of RAM, up to 16 gigs of RAM if you want to upgrade to it. Uh, you can also upgrade the SSD if you'd like to as well, but this is like a really interesting approach that the Mint team is doing because having... You know, like a go-to, small, pretty much easily accessible device. You give it like to someone who just wants to have an ex like a, a their own computer, but they don't really need anything powerful. This is a really interesting idea. So I'm I'm curious to see how this works out for the Mint team, as well as if any other distros are kind of looking to do something similar. So this particular product also has five-year warranty, so that's pretty cool. But anyway, so Linux Mint 19 is coming soon. The Mint Box Mini 2 will have Linux Mint 19 pre-installed pre by default. 
The Ubuntu Mate team announced this week that there's a new default layout for Ubuntu 18.04, and that layout is called Familiar. Basically what they're doing is changing the, the regular traditional layout to, instead of having the separate menu systems for application system and places, they're going to replace that with the Brisk menu, which has them all in a nice, more modern style menu. In my opinion, this is a much better solution. I think they should kind of do away with the traditional style of the two-panel system, but other than that, I think this is a much this is a much better, much improved solution rather than the previous version. I think this will be a much better compromise between uh, the, the old traditional style and a new modern style. I still vote for having a more modern style, but this is at least a nice compromise. So the familiar def desktop layout for Ubuntu Mate is coming in 18.04, and it looks very nice. This week we saw some proposals from the Ubuntu community about changes that they could be happening to the future releases of Ubuntu. And first up is the removal of Qt4 from the archive. Friend of the show Simon Quigley proposed this in the Launchpad system. Luckily we have Simon on the show to talk about this. So Simon, what, what was the reason for the proposal for the removal and how could this benefit Ubuntu? We wanted to remove Qt4 from, from the archive because upstream support has been deprecated and basically the, the technologies that Qt4 is based off of, they're moving forward. We had some problems because, you know, OpenSSL, we were doing a transition in Debian and Qt4 was incompatible with OpenSSL with the with 1.1. So we had to have somebody patch that in. So therefore it's, you know, it's, it's just getting a little bit harder to, to maintain it going forward. And Qt5 is, the, is what the development is focused on now. Q5 is is really the the modern cute framework, and I guess the general the general goal is is just clean up and making sure that all of our applications work efficiently and they work with the modern technologies and that they don't bit rot. The the goal that I set in place for this you know for this transition, if you'd like to call it that, is to have Q4 completely out of the archive for the 1904 release. When I first made this proposal, there was about 330 different packages need to be looked at. I think we've got that number, as of now, we've gotten the number down to about 270. And then the goal is to continue looking at each of these packages and seeing, is this something that's part of the KDE4 stack that we can remove? Is this something that, you know, that can be ported, that would be beneficial to be ported or has an active upstream that we can consult with? The general goal is just to, to move forward. Also, there was a proposal for the uh, LZ4 or LZ4, depending on where you're from, uh, the compressor for init RAMFS to be used. Basically, it's actually going to be considered to be used for 18.04 in a experimental state and theoretically may be default for 18.10. They did say that if it works well in 18.04 that they would like to push it to 18.10. But what this would do is actually increase the size of the initrd.img file, but decrease the time for extraction of the file for booting the operating system. So it could improve the op the boot time, maybe even make it twice as fast as it currently is. So that has a lot of potential, and I'm looking forward to see if it works. This week we got an update from the BitKey project. They describe it as a Bitcoin Swiss army knife in ver verifiably secure, self-contained, live CD slash USB. So what this is is actually a distribution based on Debian that provides a lot of utilities and tools for having a Bitcoin or like a cryptocurrency wallet. It doesn't have to be Bitcoin, but it supports many different types of currencies. And it's a distro that is built on turnkey Linux build system. 
it's intended to be like a distro, like an easy access, low barrier to entry to getting into the cryptocurrency space. And a really interesting thing about it is that it uses the Electrum wallet system and you can put it the, the wallet on a USB and automatically it's Lux encrypted with a loopback file system so that the live USB that runs BitKey doesn't have to be the same source that the wallet is stored on. So you could theoretically have it in an air-gapped system so that you can do Bitcoin transactions without actually having to be on the internet all the time. You can disconnect from the internet and have your wallet always disconnected if you want and only connect it when you need to use it. And they have like different usage modes. So you can have like cold usage, hot usage, implying that you're always online versus not online. It's a really interesting concept. And the original creation of BitKey was actually kind of went unmaintained for a little bit. But there's now a community edition that someone took up and like kind of forked it and created the BitKey Community Edition, which has a lot of maintenance and it's, it's they're adding a lot of cool things. Like recently, they added KeyPass XC and also it's got like the basic features of like a network manager, print manager, etc. Really interesting concept for people who are interested in checking out the cryptocurrency space. It's trying to balance between convenience and security, which I like that idea. So it has support for Bitcoin, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, Dash, Monero, and a bunch of other ones. If you're interested in checking out Bitcoin or any kind of cryptocurrency, this might be a good solution. So check it out. BitKey 14.2 Community Edition. The Atari box has been rebranded to the Atari VCS, or Video Computer System which is like an homage to the previous, like the old Atari 2600 video computer system. So they've rebranded the Atari box to the Atari VCS and have announced that they're going to announce the pre-order date. That's weird, Atari. That's weird. You're going to announce when you're going to announce something. So anyway, in April, they've decided that they will be announcing something about when the pre-order dates are possible to get the Atari VCS. But they did give us some new information about what the console is going to look like, as well as the peripherals and controllers with it. We already kind of like I got a teaser for the Atari joystick, so it's going to have like an homage to the pre like the old style Atari. But they have a new controller that actually looks pretty nice. Like it looks like it has like a really nice design and is kind of similar to the way that the Xbox is designed. So that the Xbox controller has like the instead of having the the analog sticks, they're asynchronous. So they're not in the same positions for the different hands. So hopefully, it actually comes out in the Atari or the Atari VCS. I almost called it the other name that they changed for some reason. But hopefully, it comes out pretty soon, and I look forward to it because it does look like a really cool console, and especially since it's based on Linux, that's always fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. We'll see. This week, AMD announced Radeon Rays at the Game Developer Conference, or GDC. R Radeon Rays is a GPU intersection acceler acceleration library using Vulkan, which is great. And it's, um, it's a ray tracing software development kit. So it just basically provides a lot of improvements for developers to create hardware rendering for ray tracing and stuff like that, that you can have like uh, better shadow effects and things like that and more details. What's really cool about this is that it is open source. They also made an open source standalone renderer for Radeon Rays so that the developers can really quickly get into using it. Now, it's even better than that, though. Instead of just being open source, they, that's not enough for AMD, it seems. They've also made it independent from the hardware. The Radeon Rays is not an AMD-specific thing. It works on pretty much every platform that supports OpenCL 1.2 standard, 
and it's not limited to AMD hardware, and it's not limited to any specific operating system, so it has a lot of potential for development. It allows them to be able to maintain code that isn't hardware dependent. This is great news from AMD, and uh, good job. Algobot. This is an interesting puzzle game. You play as a robot that is managing a colonization ship that is intended to go to other planets to put people in, but they're all asleep, and unfortunately something goes wrong, and you have to fix it before, you know, everybody dies. <laughs> so it's a little little morbid, I guess, a little, in a way, but it's a programming it's a programming concept puzzle game. It's got a nice quirky style, so if you're interested in that kind of thing, I, I like puzzle games because the more frustrating, the better, better for me. So I know that's not everybody, but, you know. And also, next up is the two games that are Battle Royale-type games. If you've ever heard of PUBG, it's the same kind of thing where you have a bunch of people in a single game and you try to kill each other, picking up loot and weapons and stuff like that. This one's interesting but it's because it, it's an 8-bit style, maybe 16-bit style, actually, video game. It's browser-based, so you don't actually have to download anything or install anything. It's just you just go to the website and play it. It's called Battle Royale Unsung Heroes, or I like to call it by its acronym, bruh. <laughs> I love that as an, as an acronym. I don't know why. Battle Royale Unsung Heroes is an interesting one to check out. And also there's Survivio, which is another Battle Royale web-based uh, game, web game that has like an Atari 2600 style, a very, very 2D if you're interested in that kind of game, check these out. And this one, both Survivio and Battle Royale Unsung Heroes are or bruh, are free to play. And uh, I have actually played these. And it is, it seems like it's ridiculous because it is. But they are very fun. Even if just for a few minutes, just check, check them out. It's pretty fun. So there you go. That's the Linux Gaming Roundup for this week. This week we got some interesting news from the Lineage OS team. They created the Lineage SDK, or Software Development Kit. To say it's a powerful resource that allows to keep up with both the features of the Lineage OS without being connected to the, uh, the core Android frameworks, but also adds some extra functionality to app developers so that you can now specifically provide support directly for Lineage on top of having to just build for Android. So that is pretty cool. They have added like a styles API, a profiles API, and a bunch of other stuff with some uh, nice improvements of like having automatic dark themes and stuff like that. So uh, this is a pretty interesting approach that Lineage is doing. I hope they expand this out even more so that uh, potentially do some partnerships with different phone companies. That would be fantastic. Just you know, hint, hint. Anyway, Lineage, well, it's not Lineage OS SDK. It's Lineage SDK. This week we got some news from Red Hat that six more companies have adopted, agreed to adopt the GPL v3 termination language for GPL v2 licenses. So the termination language sounds like a weird thing to call it, but this is essentially saying that these companies are going to adopt an approach that offers distributors of the code an opportunity to correct errors and mistakes in license compliance. So, for example, if they're not currently compliant to uh, the license for GPL v2 or whatever, it allows them a certain amount of time to correct that in, in compliance so that they're not sued by whoever owns the, technically owns the rights to that code. That's pretty cool. And including in these this list of six companies is the CA Technologies, Cisco, HPE, which is the enterprise version of HP, 
Microsoft, SAP, and SUSE. So that is really nice to see. A few episodes ago, we talked about how the, the kernel themselves are talking about doing the termination language for their usage of the, v, of the GPL v2. So it seems like a lot of companies are also adopting that type of, of language and agreement for the compliance aspect of the license. So that's really nice to see. And it's always good when people try to get along. Was that too cheesy? Probably. <laughs> Probably. Up next in the show is some Mozilla news. Mozilla announced that they are going to stop Facebook advertising and that they are now demanding some changes from Facebook about their privacy policy. The, actually, Mozilla has confirmed on a interview, the CEO of, of Mozilla has confirmed that they are in talks with Facebook now regarding these concerns. They will give us more information once they have solidified the details. Issued a roadmap for 2018, and this roadmap provides their goals for what they're going to try to do, which is add some new privacy and security features. So they're going to tackle some like bad ad stuff, autoplay videos and things like that, clean up a lot of the annoyances that the web has now generated. They're going to also certain types, uh, filter certain types of ads as well. One of the really interesting things they're adding is a new password manager called Lockbox. Lockbox is like a, it's a standalone password manager that's going to integrate with Firefox. Now, it's kind of been known that the Firefox password manager is terrible because all password managers for all browsers are terrible. Uh, all the built-in ones, I mean. All built-in password managers for every, every browser, it's awful. So it's nice to see that they're working on making a better version with like a whole standalone system. Probably the most popular topic this week is, for Mozilla-wise, is the Trusted Recursive Resolver Shield Study that is being, that's going to be done, or it was proposed a few days ago. And this is to allow Mozilla to test the, using a DNS over HTTPS, which would be a lot better, a lot more secure for as far as DNS resolution. So this would actually it has a lot of potential to be a really good thing. So it's going to look at resolver timings, connection error rates, HTTP response codes, things like that. So it's it's an actually really really potential to be a a good thing in the long term. But it has a little bit of short term compl of complaints from the community because they're saying it's a whole opt out thing. The opt out versus opt in argument it's probably never going to end. Even though a lot of projects that people support or like are happy that do opt in, even though they actually don't, they do opt out. But that doesn't matter. That probably that topic is probably never going to end. But what will end, hopefully, on this particular topic, is the complaint of saying that this is opt out when it's not. So the this particular issue is this is going to be only available for people using uh, who are opted into the Firefox Nightly branch. So the Nightly builds, if you are going to use Firefox Nightly, it means that you are opting into a lot of beta testing. The entire thing itself is beta testing. So if you if you decide to use Nightly, you're opting in automatically to all kinds of different tests. So this is not an opt-in versus opt-out. This is uh, potentially weird because they're using Cloudflare as the hosted server to hold the data, but that, that that seems like it's only for this experiment that they're doing that. So we don't know what they're what the long-term usage of that data or the storage of the data for the testing would be, but at the moment they're using Cloudflare. So that could be an issue for some people, but overall 
the whole opt-in versus opt-out, that's not a debate on this particular topic because you have to opt-in to Nightly to participate in the first place. We got some security news from AMD about some flaws in the architecture of some of their processors. Now, the reason why I do quotes is because CTS Labs announced that the, they found 12 vulnerabilities in AMD uh, processors, and they, and they gave them 24 hours to fix them before they announced them. Now, that's weird, right? Uh, we talked about this in the previous episode for the patron exclusives topic, but I wanted to talk about this because AMD actually announced it. Uh, they confirmed it. Technically, those flaws do exist. However, they are uh, in the works of fixing them. But to be more important, the flaws are not really security things. Because in order to utilize all of these flaws, you have to already have administrative or root access, which kind of defeats the point of them being security flaws. They're just essentially bugs at that point. That's basically it. Just to let you know that AMD will be fixing things that are not necessarily flaws that people want to pretend. Because, you know, security world is becoming a little crazy. They want to scare people to get attention for their companies. And this is one of the things that, that CTS Labs seem to be trying to do. That's why they gave them 24 hours, because they didn't expect them to be able to fix it. Like, what? So anyway, AMD will be fixing it. GitHub posted an interesting thing on their blog, their blog this week. GitHub found 4 million security flaws. That sounds bad. This is actually good, though. They created a security alert system that will notify the developers of public repositories on GitHub if their automated system finds vulnerabilities inside of their code. So they found vulnerabilities in over 500,000 public repositories, and they notified all the developers and admins of the repos to get them resolved. And they said that they were pleased to announce that shortly after launch, over 450,000 identified vulnerabilities were solved by the repository owners. Now, there's, it's, it's not been around for very long, so there's probably a little bit of time, as well as there's some repos that were not necessarily being up to date anymore so that they're not going to be maintained they're not going to be resolved because there's no one maintaining them and you shouldn't use those anyway but they said the rate of resolution is about 30 percent uh, within the first week so they within the first week of being informed people have been fixing those so the the new security alert system is working pretty well and i didn't even know it existed until they announced this blog post so that's really cool the github security alerts seems to be working Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please hit that like button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel, we have a Patreon at TuxDigital.com slash Patreon, or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to TuxDigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere, or to type less, TuxDigital.com slash shirt. Just a reminder, the show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux canoes each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.